0: Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. Today's episode, with Buddhist practice teacher Ken McLeod, will test your ability to listen. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Welcome to Alligator Preserves. We have with us today Ken McLeod, who has taught and translated Buddhist practice in the Los Angeles area and is now retired and writing. Welcome, Ken.
1: Welcome. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. I am so happy that you are here in my studio today. What brings you to Leadville?
1: A very good friend.
0: And tell me about this friend. Uh,
1: Well, she's a friend of yours too, Stephanie Spong. And uh, I've known her 17 or 18 years. And we've just helped each other very much with our lives. And uh, friendship has blossomed out of that. It's very nice.
0: Wonderful. And you're here when it's very, very cold. Have you done some skiing while you've been here?
1: Yes, I've done a little too much skiing, actually.
0: <laughs> no skiing in California?
1: Oh, yes. I go to Tahoe. And I used to ski at Mammoth a lot, but the uh, skiing here in Colorado is in a different league.
0: Um, speaking of conditions and weather conditions, how is your community recovering after all the, the wildfires out there in your neck of the woods?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, I was very fortunate my neighborhood was not uh, directly uh, threatened by fire. Came within two miles. Uh, And the main area of Santa Rosa that was burned was about five miles away, so uh, it was touch and go. Um, But for a lot of people, I don't know what the future holds for them because uh, the rebuilding costs or the rebuilding challenges are so significant. Uh, a whole year's inventory of housing was wiped out, oh my. and uh, there already there was already a shortage of tradespeople. So uh, construction is going to take time. Uh, Interesting enough, all the uh, RV parks are very full. I bet. I bet. And uh, a lot of people have just bought an RV and put it on their property and will live in that until, uh, as they gather the resources and. To, to rebuild, and this, I'm not sure that everybody will be able to.
0: Right, my husband yeah. and I have a trailer, and we enjoy going camping. And but that's a decision that we make yes. to have to live that way. When it's not a decision, it's got to be quite a transition.
1: And there's been a lot of ripple effects. Uh, a chiropractor I know said that 50 people, uh, 50 of his uh, clients, have lost uh, their homes. Uh, something like 50 of the doctors at one of the hospitals in Kenwood, or the hospital in Kenwood, uh, had lost their homes. So the, and and then there's all the uh, wineries and vineyards. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the effects are, are broad and deep.
0: Yes, yeah. I'm so sorry about that. I'm glad that your home was unscathed.
1: Yes, that was a relief.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, back in 1969, 1970, you were biking across India?
1: Well, not quite. Uh, I was married at the time, and we cycled basically from England to Ankara in Turkey. Oh, is that all? And uh, things got a little difficult after that, so we started to hitchhike then.
0: Okay. You met your first teacher?
1: First teacher when we got to India in 1970, August 1970. We were told about him uh, when we were in Delhi. And uh, we were able to go and see him in the Darjeeling area of India. his name? Kalaram Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. He was one of the senior meditation teachers in one of the four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism, the Khaju school. And uh, we studied with him for almost a year. And then he announced he was going to the West, so uh, by that time I had just enough Tibetan to begin uh, to translate, and so I ended up as this translator.
0: I was going to ask how you learned to be an interpreter of a completely different language.
1: It's a very different language. It's not in the Indo-European family of languages at all. Mm -hmm. But it's actually not a very difficult language. though I'm sure there are a few students of Tibetan who would take issue with that comment. But, <laughs> uh, basically, uh, we worked from very primitive tools, an out-of-date dictionary, a even more seriously out-of-date grammar, mm-hmm. uh, and tried to put that together. Neither of us had any formal training in Tibetan, even though Tibetan was taught in some of the local, the Indian universities and elsewhere. And then when Rinpoche got to uh, Canada, well, when there are 30 people in the room who don't speak Tibetan and there's one person in the room who doesn't speak English and you are sort of meant to know both, after a while you do.
0: (laughs) You spoke Pidgin Tibetan?
1: (laughs) Uh, My colloquial has never been that good. As one high lama said, you sound like a book. Because the written and the spoken language are very different.
0: Yes, yes. Were you on a quest to find this teacher and to and is this the first time that you became aware of eastern philosophy was this part of your goal
1: No uh that started at university graduate second third year uh started reading eastern material in But there was and... there was very little available in those days I mean I heard of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but I couldn't find a copy. I heard of the Blue Cliff Records, which is an anthology of Zen cons, but difficult to find one. Uh, I read D.T. Suzuki, who is a uh, lay scholar, Japanese scholar, who lectured extensively on Zen and Mahayana Buddhism in America. I think I came across three pillars of Zen also. Uh, That may have been later. So, there was some interest that I was pursuing then, uh but it was the sixties you mm-hmm. see, and I' become quite disillusioned with uh a career in academia, which is what i was uh where I was going and so and i uh so we just took off and uh, you know that's what you did in those days right. or some of us and uh and then after some we encountered some difficulties, and then we decided, okay, let's go to India and learn something about meditation, we both had that interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, various things fell into place and we ended up in Darjeeling with Kalar and something connected there, I guess. I mean, there wasn't any magical lights or mm-hmm. great, you know, profound experiences. But it was a feeling,
0: it was a yeah, feeling Yeah, we just
1: started to practice under his guidance. And uh, as I said, we stayed there for about a year, and then uh, came west, and I was his translator, so.
0: Did you have an early religious indoctrination in any
1: specific religion? Um, indoctrination is too strong a word. Uh, my parents were from, uh, were from England, and uh, they had a relationship with the... Well, Americans would call an Episcopalian bishop who, from all reports, was quite a remarkable person. And they had their own spiritual quest as I was growing up. But it wasn't, uh, it, it they didn't find a satisfactory path, shall we say. And for you or for, for, for them,
0: all of you? For, for them. For them. Okay.
1: And so, uh, they, they, they gradually fell away from the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and then, I found something moving in me when I was in university. Okay. So...
0: Did you share that with them?
1: Oh, they, uh... They met Rinpoche because Rinpoche stayed on my parents' farm for six weeks. Your parents and, said, what kind of farm? Oh, it's just a hobby farm outside uh, in southern Ontario. Okay. Uh, and, uh... And that was, that was very nice. So they got to know him and understand what I was doing to some extent. Okay. And, uh... But, uh... And they, they certainly had a respect for him and uh, what he was doing. But
0: How did you then become a teacher?
1: Well, I tried to avoid it. Uh, you tried? Well, I did a three-year retreat in France, uh, I guess, 1976 to 1980. You know, it was about November, December 76 when we went into retreat. And at the end of that, it was very clear that Kala Rinpoche was going to send us to various centers to teach. And I didn't want to do that. Why not? Uh, I didn't know anything. That's what I felt. And I, I'd studied a lot and read a lot, but I didn't really... I didn't have the level of experiential understanding that I thought was necessary.
0: Did you feel like a fraud? Did you feel No like no, you no, no, not,
1: not a yeah. fraud. just uh, you know and scratch the surface okay. and uh, so I asked for permission to do a second three-year retreat and uh, was able to do that. and after that, I went back to Canada and was quietly putting my life together when Rubuchet said, "Go ye to Los Angeles, do not pass go, do not collect a salary." So and why
0: that, did he choose Los Angeles for you?"
1: Uh, his Los Angeles center had had a lot of trouble, so he thought he'd send his troublemaker there. Oh,
0: <laughs> you were you were a troublemaker. Yeah. What kind I, of troubles?
1: Mm. Or, what,
0: what kind of troubles did did the center have that he thought
1: you might? Oh, be able to... uh, Los Angeles is just an extremely difficult city. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is geography. It's so spread out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, it's not a cohesive city in any sense. Uh, it has very you know it's so spread out and it's so dispersed and so unintegrated that it's very difficult to develop any kind of c- civil will there
0: and he saw something in you though that he uh well i him.
1: was uh, i was available and uh <laughs> he'd gone through uh, he'd sent three other teachers there, and all of them had had difficulty so
0: it, that was that your first place you taught?
1: Yes. I mean, I taught here and there a little bit uh, after the three-year retreat at people's request because I had all that training.
0: So you were bringing Buddhism to the West, in a way, at a time when it was just starting to become a thing.
1: Yeah, by now, I can't say I was one of the pioneers, I suppose, it depends how you look at it. Zen and the Theravadan traditions had already been quite well established by this point. Zen Center of San Francisco had been going since the 70s, and now we're talking about the mid-80s. Okay. Tibetan tradition likewise with uh, large centers and many, many groups. And there was certainly t- uh, plenty of Tibetan llamas. Uh,
0: How were you received as...?
1: Oh, I mean, in Los Angeles, a city of 14 million people, uh, I came and there was just this very small group of people, and I had to basically start from scratch. Uh, and you know, it was it was interesting and it was a challenge, you know. So there was no means of support, so I just had to build up enough of a community to start supporting myself. And
0: and you were able to support yourself from your from status? teaching, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it took a while, but and it was difficult. But
0: In a way, like being a priest with a congregation.
1: Well, that uh, that was the idea, uh, except that I never wanted to be a priest. It's interesting. I, was, I don't know whether you recall a movie called The Mission. No, it's about a priest uh, in a mission in somewhere in South America, and uh, it came out in the mid eighties, eighty six or so, I think. And I remember watching the movie, absolutely appalled and fascinated at the the degree to which these Catholic priests imposed, you know, the whole Catholic way of worship and practice on these indigenous mm-hmm. uh, tribes. Dressing them up in surplices, teaching them to do the chants and the... Uh,
0: genuflecting uh, and all that. Er-
1: everything. Yeah. Communion, etc. And I watched this realizing, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing here, bringing the whole Tibetan tradition. This And that just didn't work well for me. What I... Turned my energy to, instead, was uh, translating, uh, not just translating the teachings, but also translating uh, the, the tradition into ways that could be practiced in the West. Okay, so and the
0: purpose of the translation was to bring it to
1: Western. well, it's uh, give people. You see, people ca- came, in certainly in those days. In the, um, we're talking the mid-80s, even at that point, well, let me back up a bit. In, in, in my generation, almost all of the people who went to India and sought out teachers, whether it was in Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, I think it's fair to say that they were looking for some kind of uh mystical knowledge or experience or what have you. Mm-hmm. And, uh even in the mid-'80s, even after you know fairly substantial institutions had developed, uh, most of the people, or a lot of people, I don't know whether it's most, still had that strong urging. None of us called it mysticism. It's a word I'm, I've resuscitated recently. But it, it's about having a direct experience of spiritual understanding, not an intellectual or a conceptual one, and not just following a a code of behavior because it's the right thing to do. That's what you're told to do. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, that's changed now, I think. How so? Uh, Because a lot of people now are interested in spiritual practice because they're looking at how it can help them improve their lives. Or they're looking forward to belong to, um, for communities of like-minded people. Uh, okay. to belo- so they have a feeling of community. That's, that's become very important for a lot of people. But uh, though neither of those particu- were my particular concerns. And so I uh, I, I taught practice. And I uh, talked to people about what to do in meditation and how to deepen their understanding of these things. And uh, it was a learning experience for me, too.
0: To my listeners out there today, I do hope you're enjoying our visit with author and Buddhist practice teacher Ken McLeod, and I hope you might consider becoming a patron of the Alligator Preserves podcast on Patreon for as little as one dollar per month. Stay tuned as Ken tells us what he thinks about importing Tibetan traditions to the West, the intentions of Buddhist practice, and much more. Yeah, as a yeah. teacher, you continue to learn as well. Yeah.
1: But but I but I wasn't terribly concerned with importing the Tibetan tradition as it was in Tibet, in the terms of its forms and everything like that. I had deep respect for it because I practiced them myself and knew exactly how they worked. And Did you what think were, it
0: would not have been received?
1: Well, you know,
0: accepted here. People uh, in, in Los Angeles. it easier here?
1: People in Los Angeles don't have time to do five-hour ceremonies on a regular basis. Uh, Or another way of putting it is that, unlike Zen, perhaps, or other traditions of Buddhism, Tibetan practices are fairly complex, or a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. But I quickly observed that people in Los Angeles were living very complex lives.
0: So you had to simplify it.
1: Well, they were looking for something where they could just rest and wasn't too complicated. They didn't want complications on complications. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, a number of the Tibetan teachers began to notice the same thing. And okay. and so they started adapting they what they were teaching. Their own teachings. Yeah. Okay. Or the emphasis in their teachings anyway.
0: I I listened to an interview that you did with Buddhist geeks. Mm-hmm in which you said that you didn't feel you were an expert on anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you remember that interview?
1: Uh, It's the kind of thing I could say, yes. You could say it,
0: yes. What do you think constitutes expert status?
1: Well, I may set the bar pretty high, but an expert in a subject matter or a skill uh, to me is someone who knows the subject or the the matter so deeply and um, so well that in most situations they really don't have to think very much to Understand how to apply it in a particular situation and their applications will be pretty damn accurate That's an expert
0: And so are you saying that You're not an expert at anything because you have to think too long about something before responding?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm I'm notorious for speaking too quickly Uh, but I don't feel I have developed that level of mastery in anything. And you know, I look at people who have developed mastery in, you know, it can be in anything. It can be skiing. Uh, it can be uh, management. It can be in finance. It can be in facilitation, it can be in medicine. Uh, and These people really know their stuff.
0: But don't you think your students over the years would see you as being an expert?
1: Uh, they might, yes. Okay. But that isn't necessarily how I see myself.
0: All right. We see ourselves through through different lenses. Yes, clearly. Yeah.
1: You know, just because people see you one way doesn't make you that.
0: <laughs> or does it?
1: Oh, no, no. Definitely not. Uh Because people, to a large extent, people see what they want to see. Okay. And, you know, but what you say has merit because the opinion you have of yourself is always false, is always wrong. And the opinion people have of who you are is also always wrong. Neither of them are complete.
0: So we could never answer you could never answer the question who are you
1: no i couldn't uh that i mean you ask that question and i look and i don't know
0: i just am
1: you know, there's a, a famous encounter between a teacher from india named bodhidharma i think this is in the 8th or ninth century maybe earlier in china and the uh, emperor says to him uh, so I funded all of these monasteries and these translations and supported all of these monks. How much merit have I earned? And uh, or uh, how much good luck have I earned mm-hmm. from doing this? Mm-hmm. and Or goodness, or however you want to translate that term. And the uh, a teacher, who was uh, very to the point, uh, said, none whatsoever. This did not please the emperor. So he said... What is your understanding of the Buddha's teachings? And the teacher said, "I have no idea." And finally, uh, no, he says, "I don't know." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the uh, emperor said, "Then who stands before me?" And the teacher said, "I have no idea." Mm-hmm. And the emperor was sufficiently displeased this time; he threw him in jail. His name was Bodhidharma. And so he sat in jail for a year, or 12 years or so, I'm not sure what the story is, mm-hmm. staring at a wall. That was was practicing meditation. And that's how the sotos then practice meditation to this day. They sit, stare at a wall. It comes from that.
0: I wonder if he ever found out who he was.
1: That's not really the concern in Buddhism. No. Well, it's quite the opposite, actually. You find out that you are not okay. anyone. And that actually is a liberating experience
0: if you're not anyone does it take away the importance of you without having to define importance i mean
1: well it it, it takes away any sense of self-importance okay but it doesn't in any way limit your ability to function in the world in fact it actually enhances your ability to function in the world, because you're not caught up with the ideas of maintaining an idea of who you are, an identity. I, mm-hmm. and, I mean, I, and one could say that that is the intention of Buddhist practice is simply is to become an ongoing response to the needs of others. Okay. and so it's actually not having having no sense of being something is actually a, a kind of freedom. And uh, if that makes any sense to you.
0: doesn't really. I have, to, <laughs> I have to really think about it for a long time.
1: Okay. Well, that's the kind of stuff that <laughs> I, I...
0: I think I need to go sit in a cell somewhere. <laughs> your first book, mm-hmm. Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, it was released in 2002. And I quote from the book's description, the key to becoming fully alive and joyful is to develop our natural capacity for attention and to be fully present here and now. Tell me how you wrote that hefty book. What was your process?
1: It started when a student said, you've given us all of this teaching, it's very helpful, but you haven't provided any framework for it.
0: I need a textbook, teacher. Teacher.
1: Yeah, something like that. But then like, uh, you know, what's the big picture here? So I wrote a small pamphlet called Buddhism in a nutshell. <laughs> and then somebody else said, well, could you just write down basic meditation instructions? So we don't always have to get them from you. I said, okay. So I wrote another book called uh, Cultivating Intention. Okay. A booklet. And then a lot of people had been asking me to write a book, so I figured, "Mm, okay, I've written these two. Maybe I could write a few more just as an exercise in writing uh, and sort of work up my writing muscles or skills. Because you
0: are certainly not an expert, so... No, no, uh, (laughs) definitely not.
1: And so I wrote three or four more. And then I realized, oh... Well, maybe I could make these all these into a book. And uh, that's how it came about.
0: How many years, or how long did it take you to put that all together?
1: It depends very much how you count it. I started writing in earnest in 97. And as you say, the book came out in early 2002, say 2001, so... By four close, years. four years. W- yeah, um... Uh, but I wasn't writing all that time. I was teaching and teaching retreats and doing a lot of other stuff. So, mm-hmm. And staring a lot at my computer wondering <sighs> how to write.
0: Once you released it into the world, what did you learn?
1: Huh. What did I learn? It was fairly well received. I mean, it was a, it's a highly technical book. I only know a few people who've actually read it. It's more of an encyclopedia.
0: This is a challenge to me now, you know. Okay, I'd have to read it before I see you again. <laughs> uh,
1: well, you may not be the same. <laughs> uh, a lot of people looked at it, saw, and in fact, a, a good a friend and colleague of mine described it as a uh, as a manual, and and that's fair. It, it is, and so a lot of people expected me now to write a. Uh, Student's manual to go with it and the teacher's manual Mm -hmm. with it, you know, Mm and just do the the thing that everybody else in the West, you build a system, etc. I've never taught from it. And whenever I have tried to teach from it, it doesn't work. Uh, And I realized gradually that from some other experiences that when I write something, it's my way of saying goodbye to it. Oh. It's finished so that book was the result of about eight or nine years i guess yeah about that eight or nine years of teaching very small groups you know a series of topics and quite a few groups i don't know probably 10 or 12 groups over that period of time and so worked material and now i'd written it and now it was done and it's time to move on to other things. So I never taught from it. A lot of people have. A lot. Of, it's used by various teachers and various self-study groups um, here and in Europe. But I can't teach from it.
0: Okay. In 2014, you published Reflections on Silver River. Mm-hmm. 37 practices of Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. Freedom, peace, and understanding are concepts in the book. And for, Well, first I wanted to talk about how your writing practice changed from your first book to this one, and maybe how did your thinking change?
1: Uh, quite a bit. Wake Up to Your Life is based on a sequence that's pretty widely practiced in, in Tibet. It's a series of meditations. So there was a well-defined structure, and I basically presented those meditations in utterly Western vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know any Tibetan culture to read the book, and that was my intention. Reflections on Solva River, I started to write because uh, I, once again I needed to develop some writing skills and didn't feel i was very competent so i started writing a series of newsletters using uh, the reflections on silver river is a translation and commentary of a very revered and loved text in the tibetan tradition written by a 14th century monk named Tome zongpo who had a very special relationship with compassion uh, beggars. Well, beggars would never ask him for alms because they knew that he would give them the sh- literally the shirt off his back. And they
0: respected him so
1: much, so so, so much cared. that they they just wouldn't ask him for alms because you know he was he was, yeah. would give them and uh, and there are many many stories like that from his life. Uh, he would have. Wolves and dogs play. Uh, wolves and sheep play peacefully around him. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. And it's a book that and there are a couple of Tibetan teachers who so value this text that wherever they teach, they just hand out tiny little copies of it to everybody who comes because mm-hmm. they want to understand. And it's called, uh, and the text is called the Thirty Seven Practices of a Bodhisattva, which Tommy Zongpo wrote when he was completely depressed uh, and really despairing about how Buddhism was being practiced in 14th century Tibet. <laughs> uh, it was so commercial and so material-driven and things like that that he wrote this, da- he wrote this to remind himself of what the really important points were.
0: He, he would be horrified today, wouldn't
1: he? Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> if you talk about the commercialism. About
1: yeah. Uh, and... But, you know, How
0: was it commercialized back then?
1: Well, if if you wanted to, if if you didn't have any money, you went out and did ceremonies for the local population, and you know, and you you or you flattered your patrons and things like that. So it was a you know, it's it's always been this way. It's human, it's human mm-hmm. society. Anyway, so I I started writing just a commentary on each verse, and then people found it so helpful that they asked me to put it into a book. So I put a, everything together and then basically rewrote all of them because I, I needed to them to be... And uh, writing newsletters you can be a little loose, but mm-hmm. if you're putting it into written form then you've got to take much more care and make sure everything is really clear. So and, you went
0: from pamphlets to newsletters.
1: Yeah, well, pamphlets to, yeah, pamphlets books, to books, and, and then and newsletters, newsletters to another book. <laughs> to another book. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that was, that, that was, it was very well received, and I'm quite happy. I think it's the most accessible of the books I've written.
0: Someone said of it, he, in talking about you, he challenges the reader to engage various scenarios and consider how compassion, clarity, presence, and balance could take expression in his or her life. I started by talking about the idea of freedom, peace, and understanding. Concepts we're still struggling with worldwide. Hello, listeners. Please stay tuned for more with Ken McLeod as he talks about a different way to live and answers the question, Is ignorance bliss? Just wait till you hear his suggestion for a personal challenge. Why haven't we evolved as a species yet to understand that there's a different way to live? I was going to say a better way to live, but...
1: I think your use of different is very wise there. Uh, it's a very complex question. And, and this, what, what comes to mind when you ask this question is a, a sentence I came across a few months ago in, uh, in a blog. It says, The great theme of Chinese literature is the world is not designed to support the life worth living.
0: Let me think about that. The world is not, not designed, designed
1: to, support to support the life, worth, the life living. worth
0: living.
1: No, I think that... Uh, I th- it's one of the most wonderful sentences I've come across. Uh, I think it's just so full of meaning and, and very deep meaning and, and, and actually, for me anyway, guidance. Because what you have in all of the great spiritual traditions is this tension between, as we put it in Christianity, the spirit and the flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, translate that into a more modern vocabulary. There are, uh, our genetic uh, makeup, our our biological and psychological conditioning, which are very much directed at evolutionary uh, imperatives. And you come up with things like Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene, and so forth and so Mm -hmm. forth. But through the course of evolution, human beings develop capacities, abilities and, and capacities, where things that had nothing to do with evolution could arise you know music uh, you know laughter jokes uh all kinds of things uh you know tennis skiing <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean there's and uh, so mathematics uh you know uh art uh it's very difficult i know there are people called evolutionary psychologists who try to Determine the evolutionary value of, of all of these things, but basically, that's a very reductionist approach, and I don't have very much patience with it. And among those, and you see this so clearly in the Jewish tradition, they discover that there's there's whole ways of experiencing the world, and wisdom and intuition and so forth, uh, and it's like somebody speaking to you from another world, or you know, God, or what have you, and all of these things. And those are human capacities. And then there's always been this tension between these, what we could broadly speak as spiritual capacities, and then the the physical and evolutionary needs. And so in that sentence, to me what it's saying is that the world, that is everything that we are materially speaking and so forth, is it's there and we have to pay attention to it but it was never designed, it was never intended to support our spiritual or uh, even our moral or ethical ways of organizing ourselves in society. And so uh, you have different philosophers and spiritual practitioners whose view of life is that the purpose of life is to find a way to live in which we live in a way that... We feel worthy of the name human being, and, and and how we interact with each other. Or you know, you have this in Judaism and uh, in, in Jewish tradition. You have the uh, his mensch, uh, the mensch. or so, yeah, you know, it's, it, which has the idea. I don't know what the female equivalent is, but uh, there's undoubtedly something where you you are a worthy person mm-hmm. in, in some way, which we could try to define. And you and you do that even though the world isn't particularly interested in supporting that, as as we see in our lives, because we have stuff tearing at us one way or another, all over the place. Unless we're very very fortunate, and even then, we find ourselves almost always in difficult situations at some point in our lives.
0: Do you think intuition is an evolutionary trait? Do you think Do you think our ability to intuit things as as a race, as as humans, has evolved at all?
1: I, I have no idea. I, we have the capacity to know directly. I would actually say that intuition probably precedes the formation of language, and language obscures it. Yeah. Okay. Because cause then you have the conceptual mind. and you, I mean, <laughs> a very simple thing that I would do when I was teaching is that somebody would be saying, is it struggling, you know, with their meditation or whatever and I would while they were talking quietly take the keys, my car keys out of my pocket and when they weren't expecting it, I would just toss them to it. And they would catch it. Oh every time. They would just go
0: From the very first time you did it?
1: Oh yeah. And and but then I would just say, give me the keys back. And they would say, Now I want you to think about catching it. And I would toss them again. They'd always miss it. <sighs> Now you know this from your own background uh, that there are situations, particularly if you trained, where thinking absolutely gets in your way, mm. and that's this takes us back to what we were talking about as uh, an expert. An expert is someone whose knowledge has gone past the point that they need to think about it.
0: And it's beyond. It's beyond just muscle memory.
1: Yeah, I mean, because there can be a cognitive work where they, uh, cognitive skills where they just know directly. Now, is this intuition? I don't know. Intuition is a pretty vague term. Mm-hmm. But the one thing about intuition that I think most people agree on, it is a form of knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people call it a hunch or some people right. call it, but, but, there's, a, but there's, there's a directness there, which in most cases is valued. Mm-hmm.
0: Many years ago, I read The Power of Now.
1: Ah, Eric Tolle.
0: Are you familiar? Do you know him?
1: I've met him, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I I I've read a couple of his books, including The Power of Now. Yeah.
0: What do you think of that book? Maybe that's not a fair question. I I know that when I read it, it was enlightening for me. Yeah. Because we don't tend to stop and think and be where we are. Well, in a moment.
1: I think that uh, uh, Tolle is very good. When he's talking about actual practice, he was trained originally in Zen, but found his own way, own path, really through quite difficult depression, from what I know, uh, and had this insider or awakening, whatever, which the power of now is based on, and, and 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 is an expression of his understanding that arose from that kind of experience. And I find he's quite good when he's talking right, right on the the topic of, uh, of practice. Well, yeah. And and what, what I think is remarkable, because there are lots of people who have what we can term awakening experiences, and most of them, not most of them, but many of them, are dismissive of a, a traditional path, which I think is a big mistake. Eric uh, uh, Tolle is not and he recognizes the value of those traditional pasts. May not be. He may not advocate them, but he recognized their value, and I think that's, that's something to be said for him there.
0: Okay. In one of your interviews, you said, whenever you find yourself really concerned about something, be suspicious of it. <laughs> so my question to you is, is ignorance bliss?
1: Well, that's a big leap. How did you go from my statement to that statement? I, you're going to have to when fill well you, When the,
0: you're really concerned about something, typically you're delving deeply into it, and you know a lot about it, and that's generally what makes you concerned.
1: I think we're using the word slightly differently.
0: Okay. Explain what you meant in your statement. When yeah, you're really concerned about something, be suspicious of it.
1: Ignorance is not bliss. Okay. Uh, very definitely. I was using it in the sense of, uh, I can't remember the actual context, but I'm probably I meant that when you find yourself obsessing about something, be suspicious because there's some unresolved issue in you that's hooked into this, and uh, quite contrary to ignorance is bliss is that that. Obsessive concern is going to lead you to ignore a lot of other issues, right so if you find yourself obsessing or really concerned about something, get suspicious like what 's going on here why, why does this have such a hook on me mm-hmm. uh, what's it, what 's it hooking into in me? Get curious about it what what 's going on here and it, it can be quite revealing and and that, and it 's a way of finding freedom because if you can identify. You know, a lot of the times, what hooks us is some old experience that we've never come to terms with, that we've associated often unconsciously with with the present circumstances. So that 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 was what I was trying to convey with that.
0: And if we can't come to terms with it on our own, how do we find someone to help us with that?
1: Well, there are a lot. It depends what it is. There are a lot of different avenues. There's spiritual practice, spiritual guidance of you know, of any form, you know. Uh, there are a lot of quite quite good uh, priests and ministers. There are good meditation teachers and uh, spiritual people in virtually every tradition that I've had any contact with. There are skilled psychologists and therapists of various kinds, and there is most people have somebody in their life who has an element of wisdom and understanding and patience, uh, friends. I mean, there are many, many resources we can draw on here, and it's impossible to say which the right one is for a given circumstance. I think what is most important in any of these is, if if you can't find a way to come to terms with yourself, is to find someone who can listen to you very deeply and reflect you back, and that can be a friend. Mm. It can be a parent, it can be... It doesn't
0: have to be an expert.
1: Not in the credentialed sense of expert that we have in our society, yes. Okay.
0: You're retired now, and you're still writing more than pamphlets and newsletters?
1: I'm working on a book, yes.
0: You want to tell us about what you're working on? (laughs) Or is it a secret? No,
1: it's not a secret uh, at all. Uh, In the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, there is a very important, I don't want to call it a uh, path, uh, called Vajrayana, uh, that's a Sanskrit word, which developed in India probably in the second or third centuries, in very small spiritual cults, but flowered in India, and then, when Buddhism came to Tibet, came with it. and. It's a set of practices, mystical practices, I think we can say quite fairly, which don't really correspond to anything in mainstream uh, religious practice or spiritual practice in the West. so a lot of people who practice this stuff don't have a great deal of difficulty understanding it, so what I'm trying to do in this book is set out my own experience with these practices and what understanding I've come, and perhaps a little arrogantly hope that that is helpful to others.
0: Well, this is what you've done before in your translations, right? Trying to make it more accessible
1: to it, it, yeah. I mean, it, busy one, people. One way you can define my life, I think, reasonably, is that I'm a, I'm a translator. and uh, But I translate on different levels. I can translate... Teacher speaking, translate that orally, I translate books, but I've also translated the forms, uh, the metaphors, and in in a way of building a body of of teaching which people in the West can relate to and will be helpful.
0: So, Vadriana, do you have a title for the book? And do you know when it will come out?
1: No, I don't. I mean, it's taking, it's probably the most challenging book to write at this point for several reasons and um, I'd like to have a first draft of it by the end of this year and and then so maybe it comes out in what are we now 2018 Mm -hmm. maybe sometime in 2019 if all goes well
0: okay I'll be in touch with you and find out about that (laughs) but before I let you go if you could leave our listeners with one practice they could start today today that would help to bring them freedom, peace, understanding? What would that practice be?
1: Well, that's a difficult question because there are so many practices. Oh no, but
0: I'm just having you pick one. One that they could, as soon as they take their earbuds out from this interview, they could do it.
1: Okay. Whenever you talk, listen to yourself talking as if you were listening to another person speak. That's it. All
0: right. Long silence after that. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, is there anything else you want to add?
1: No. I'm, unless there's something <laughs> else you want to ask. But
0: Thank you so much for visiting with us today. I am absolutely honored and listeners out there, because I know you're listening really carefully right now. You can find Ken McLeod's books, and his last name is spelled M-C-L-E-O-D. You can find his books on Amazon, and you can explore many of his teachings and practices at unfetteredmind.org. Ken, thank you, and I look forward to you returning to Leadville.
1: Thank you very much, Laurel. It's been a pleasure.
0: bye Hi, friends. I have a correction to make for my last episode, in which I told you about the prestigious 2018 SEPA Evie Awards. The website for more information is at sepabooks.com, not org. And here's a reminder to submit your books before March 16th for early bird savings. If you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about it. Perhaps you'll even help support Alligator Preserves on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Find my show notes with links and photos on my website at leadvillelorel.com and join me next time when I'll tell you about a homeless woman who gave me an unforgettable gift. Until then, choose your preserves wisely. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard, with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelorel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.